Thanks for tuning in to the Rhode Island History Podcast. This is, I think, episode six or something like that. I've lost count. I'm really excited today because the guest on this episode is Dr. Patrick Conley, who you might know as the historian laureate for the state of Rhode Island. Now, Dr. Conley has been controversial in the past, I realize that, but I think our conversation today was pretty well regarded. Uh, We talked about immigration in the state of Rhode Island, in particular, what's called the Faber Line. That was the passage by which immigrants from South Europe and the Mediterranean Basin made their way to New England via Rhode Island in New York. Dr. Connolly has written a wealth of books, articles, pamphlets, and what have you about the state of Rhode Island. And so I gave him the opportunity with this episode to choose the topic himself. And he chose the Faber line because for various reasons, it's related to things that are going on today. And because as you'll see, the Faber line is sort of a metaphor for Rhode Island's modern history from the early 20th century to today. Dr. Conley was also the mentor for some of the previous guests in this show. So, as you can imagine, he's a hugely influential figure for Rhode Island history, and it was a pleasure to have him on, and I look forward to having him on again in the future. So, without further ado, here is Dr. Conley. My name is uh, Dr. Patrick Conley. I'm the uh, first ever historian laureate of Rhode Island. Uh, I'm also the uh, chairman, uh, uh, founding chairman of the Rhode Island Publication Society uh, that uh, made a lot of the books uh, that we're going to talk about today uh, possible. Uh, the president of the Rhode Island Heritage Hall of Fame and the founding president of the Heritage Harbor Foundation, which is the foundation that funds all these cultural projects. Thanks for being. Here. Well, I'm here with you, but thanks for allowing me to come here and showing me the, the book collection and the, the new lecture hall. I, just, I saw that earlier. It's an amazing place yep. um, for people who haven't been here. Yeah, the Heritage Java Foundation has been acquiring. We have now 20% of this condominium, of this building, with uh, five separate uh, condominium units. And it's going to give us a headquarters, so to speak, uh, for which to operate a working headquarters. But we're going to have a much more prominent uh, and stately headquarters uh, eventually. Uh, my wife and I have uh, donated our home, our estate on Gale Winds, which is at the tip of Bristol Point, and which uh, is presently valued at about four million. And that's going to be the home uh, for purposes of meetings and the public persona of the Heritage Harbor Foundation. They, they, they are the, uh, the uh, donee. Uh, but also the Hall of Fame and the Publication Society will use that uh, facility as well uh, when, uh, unfortunately, uh, the the life estate reserved for my wife and myself run out. And uh, so we won't be around to uh, see the operations, uh, but uh, uh, it is an asset that the Heritage Java Foundation will have, and uh, that asset will help fund 
the Hall of Fame and all the publications that the society is engaged in, and plus make grants, and we've given over 60 already to Rhode Island heritage-oriented nonprofit groups, um, and a, a lot of those grants to smaller groups like Chinese and Laotians, or to minority groups like Native Americans and Blacks. I think that, first of all, that's amazing. I think a lot of historians, particularly coming from the academic world, where I currently am, uh, can only dream of entering the public sphere in such a uh, monumental way, in such a purposeful, meaningful way. So uh, that's awesome to hear. And, and you already do so much, I think, for uh, the state of Rhode Island in terms of crossing that academic threshold into public history. Yeah, they, the big breakthrough uh, was in 1974 when uh, Governor Noel named me the chairman of RI-76. That was the Rhode Island Bicentennial Commission. And we had, a, in fact, the Ethnic Heritage Pamphlet Series and the Ethnic Heritage Program that we still support today through the foundation had its origins in the Bicentennial. And uh, after heading the State Bicentennial Observance, where we got the actually the national award from the American Revolution Bicentennial Administration as the best organized and coordinated state celebration in America. We had all 39 cities and towns with their own bicentennial committees. Uh, after that, uh, I was fortunate enough uh, to be tapped again in, uh, by uh, House Speaker Matt Smith uh, to become the chairman of the Bicentennial of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and embedded in that was the Bicentennial of Rhode Island Statehood on May 29th of uh, <clears throat> 1790 to May 29th, 1990. And one of the things that the Heritage Alba Foundation does now is to make that Statehood Day kind of a, a day of permanent celebration. We've hooked up with the Patuxent Rangers and the Gatsby Days Committee. And now every 29th of May, we have an event down at Rhodes uh, that... Uh, is uh, orchestrated by the Rangers and funded by the foundation and uh, tries to give the public some idea, not only of when Rhode Island became a state and why, but also Rhode Island's impact on the Constitution. Our most recent speakers were Gordon Wood mm -hmm. at Brown University, who was one of the leading authorities in America on the origins of the Constitution. He talked about Rhode Island's role. And then uh, uh, another... Uh, a scholar from our board, actually, Rusty Simone, uh, talked about it from the perspective of, of uh, voting. Yeah, talk, he was uh, the guest for the first episode of this podcast, uh, Russ, to talk about the macaroni riots. So oh, yeah. I got up a chance on, to meet him. Federal Hill, yeah. Um, but, so, obviously, you've written a lot of yes. Rhode Island's history, a lot of topics spanning time and, and, and field of history itself. Uh, but you chose today to talk about the Faber line, and so let's start with that. Just explain sort of what is the Faber line for people who might not know. All right, well, ba basically the, the uh, Faber line is pronounced both ways. So you went incorrect in saying <laughs> Faber because that's how it's spelled. Uh, Faber is the uh, name that was used generally here in Rhode Island. Just like in Maine, it's Calais, Maine, rather than Calais. So, uh, but I'll call it I'll call it the Faber Line. It was founded in 1881 by Cyprian Faber, 
uh, who uh, <clears throat> was a resident and a merchant of Marseille in France. And so it was a French-based line, and uh, it, uh, from the outset, was not only a cargo line, but it was a passenger line, and one that attempted to build up, because I talked about the 1880, 1924, mm -hmm. he was kind of on the ground floor of the uh, new immigration, so to speak. So he oriented his line towards passengers from Europe, from the Mediterranean area, uh, to the United States. And eventually uh, the line uh, went from Marseille uh, to Naples, Italy, uh, to Palermo, Sicily, uh, to Lisbon, Portugal, and to the Azores. Uh, and that was the initial routes that it took. You can see, therefore, why your Italian so people of Italian ancestry uh, uh, are almost uh, a quarter of the population of Rhode Island and why uh, the Portuguese are so uh, numerous, not only in Rhode Island, but in southeastern New England, where many of them got off the ships and migrated into nearby southeastern Massachusetts, where they had connections because of their participation in the whaling industry, particularly out of New Bedford. So, uh, uh, Faber line, the Faber line was started by Cyprian Faber, and it, it uh, made its stops early on in New York. But then in 1907, uh, the federal government became somewhat alarmed because the immigration into the port of New York exceeded a million two, and it was burdening the facilities there at Ellis Island. And so uh, the uh, federal government sent out an appeal uh, to various port cities that could you do something to take care of uh, this enormous influx? Uh, would you be able to set up immigrant landing stations in your particular port? And Providence responded, Mayor Joseph Gaynor, uh, responded uh, very uh, quickly and prominently. Uh, and uh, so in in uh, 1911, the first Faber Line ship came into the Port of Providence. It was called, it was, its name was the Madonna. And it went over into Fox Point, because there was no state pier number one. And uh, Fox Point's still there. It's uh, uh, still used for the, block, for the uh, ferry at the present time, uh, the Newport Ferry. And uh, a couple of the ships ran aground and had difficulty there. And so the Faber Line complaint says you've got to do more. So the state of Rhode Island <clears throat> joined with Providence and funded the creation of State Pier Number One, still in existence on Allen's Avenue, and very regretfully and sorrowfully, uh, a pier now used for the export of scrap metal. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the big uh, heaps of with, metal that you yeah, see. Yeah, horrendous uh, blunder by the state of Rhode Island and the city of Providence in allowing that to go to a scrap metal company when uh, there were plans for the development of that waterfront mixed use. Uh, and uh, uh, that, uh, that plan was thwarted by political corruption, by bribery. And that's the thing that drove the Faber Line out of existence, the Faber Line Club. Mm -hmm. But early on, uh, we don't want to jump to uh, uh, 2010 and 11, uh, the Faber Line comes in in, in 1911, 
has a little bit of trouble with its ships. So the city of uh, Providence and the state of Rhode Island builds State Pier Number 1. And on December the 17th of, two, of uh, 1913, the first ship of the Faber Line, the Venezia, docks at State Pier Number 1. And during the period uh, uh, of the Faber Line's visit, uh, if we count 1911 and start it there, uh, there were 84,000 roughly uh, individuals uh, that debarked uh, from Europe uh, into Providence aboard the ships of the Faber Line. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the migration was mainly Italian and Portuguese because of the route, Naples, Palermo, Lisbon, and the Azores. But then after World War I, when the volume of immigration uh, began to increase, uh, there were those that felt that uh, there ought to be some more severe restrictions. And of course, the immigration issue today is humongous, frankly. And uh, uh, so what happened was that the federal government, the Congress passed the Quota Act of 1921, setting quotas, but quotas based on the population of a particular group back prior to 1890, which meant that some of the newer groups would have smaller quotas. Mm -hmm. And then in 1924, they passed the Immigration and Nationality Act, which further restricted immigration. When that happened, what the Faber Line had to do to continue economically viable was to send feeder ships eastward, Greece, Palestine, up through the Bosphorus into the Black Sea, into the Ukraine, where they pick up Romanians and Polish as well as Ukrainians, and uh, make some side stops at Cape Verde, where uh, some of the Cape Verdean packets were you know, falling off as far as their numbers were concerned. And so they, they put together a kind of a patchwork of, of uh, pickups, bring them back to Marseille, and send them out uh, to America. That process was further dampened, however, by the great crash of 29 and the recession that followed. And the Faber Line's uh, visitation there in the midst of the Great Depression was curtailed in 1934. But what the Faber Line did during its uh, existence uh, here in Rhode Island from 1911 to 34, it, it greatly augmented the Italian population. It, didn't be, it wasn't the beginning of it because a lot of the Italians took the Faber Line boats to New York and then came to Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. uh, but it augmented the Italian population, gave a significant increase to the Portuguese, but then with the dispersal in the 1920s, you get Greeks, you get Syrians and Lebanese, you get Jews from Palestine, you get Ukrainians yeah. and Romanians, and so you get a, uh, a potpourri of individuals. And uh, as you'll see in that the book, which you'll be able to uh, uh, take with you, the book, not only the history of the Fable Line, but in the Fable Line Club, I boiled a lot of this down, and I have essays in that that I that were based on lectures I gave to the club that talk about the Fable Line as being the key 
to Rhode Island's ethnic diversity. Mm-hmm. So the Fable Island is quite, uh, quite important. Um, the state pier number one uh, afterwards it was turned mainly to commercial use and there really was no regular passenger service by any lines into Providence from the middle of World War II onward until the uh, my project at Alexander with my wife, the Providence Piers Project in 2007 started to bring in the ships of American cruise lines, which is a coastal cruise lines now spread throughout America on the rivers of America. And that was like the first passenger cruise liners with regular visits to Rhode Island, to Providence. Uh, not so much to, to, to Newport that was occasion, but, but to Providence since the mid uh, 1940s. And all that went down the tubes when the zoning from uh, Marine Industrial, which it was zoned as from the 1930s onward, uh, the zoning was proposed from marine industrial to mixed use, and it would have allowed for auxiliary healthcare facilities, a cruise ship terminal, hotels, uh, restaurants, waterfront businesses, much in the manner of what uh, uh, Portland, Maine, and Baltimore, and Philadelphia, and Savannah, and Charleston, and all have done. But uh, there was a situation where the individuals who were renting State Pier Number One, the Cohen brothers, uh, they were renting State Pier Number One from the state. They used political influence to get the state to declare its surplus, despite the fact it was going to be the keystone of what the Providence, City of Providence Department of Planning regarded as the revitalized waterfront. And uh, they had a long-term lease there, and so the only uh, bidders, because the lease didn't expire till this year, uh, or would not have expired, was the uh, Promat Shipyard run by the Cohens. So they bought the land for one million one hundred thirty-nine thousand, including State Pier. Blocked the zoning by bribing members of the uh, City Council's Ordinance Committee. So the ordinance never came out of committee, despite the city spending a million and a half dollars on the redevelopment plan, the Providence Redevelopment Agency approving it nine to nothing, and the City Plan Commission approving it six to one. It didn't, it, when the, the last step was the council and the ordinance committee locked it up. Presumably uh, were paid to do so. And as a result, the, uh, uh, the Cohens were able to sell their land that they had just bought from the state, public land, bought it for a million, uh, $138,000, they flipped it to Sims for $12,608,000. They made $11.5 billion on the flip of state land in the middle of the Great Recession of 2007 through 2011. Right smack in the middle when commercial and industrial properties were down 40% in their evaluation and in their sales price. Uh, they made $11.5 billion haul. I went to the U.S. Attorney, the FBI, State Attorney General, and they didn't see anything curious about that fact, which is, uh, I regard as a round historian and a lawyer, 
the greatest miscarriage uh, of justice by them turning a blind eye. And I don't know of any scam ever perpetrated in Rhode Island history of that magnitude. And yet the waterfront now, all scrap, uh, salt piles, debris, it's the construction debris. The eyesore in. From, and when you come here, so that's yeah. the Renaissance City, and you look to that area where Boston, look at, compare Boston, compare Baltimore, Portland, you could still have had mixed use on that waterfront, right. but uh, to make it purely industrial, it's, and, and the thing is, it's low-end industrial uses. It's, it's scrap metal, it's the storage of salt, it's, it, it, they dump construction overflow uh, of, you know, concrete and asphalt and everything else. There are mounds of that over there on another one. It's, uh, the buildings there are all deteriorated, full of graffiti. And uh, that, unfortunately, uh, was the fate. And uh, I was, my wife and I were foolish enough in 2004 and five when Mayor Cicilline announced this is a new city, uh, paraphrasing Zancy, and we're going to build here all kinds of beautiful attractions, recreational and cultural and, and medical and what have you. And uh, the Providence Journal, for some reason, maybe somebody at the journal had, had shares in Sims Metal, uh, they came out repeatedly in their editorials by blasting my wife and I for trying to develop, for yuppifying the waterfront. And, and uh, of course, when the, the jobless rate was 12%, uh, and and uh, depriving Rhode Islanders of jobs. And uh, when we brought an action against Sims later on for the damage to the building that we restored and put on the National Register, the, you might say the Fableline Clubhouse, next to State Pier Number 1, uh, we found out that Sims had five full-time employees and were virtually none on, the, on that entire waterfront. It was all a scam, it was a hoax. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm like a voice crying in the wilderness, like Don Quixote, because, uh, you know, people hear that and they're astounded. And they're astounded that nothing was done. Uh, it's too bad that C.S. he was a silver mayor, because if he were, if something like that happened, they'd be bringing the FBI in from the Rocky Mountains. Uh, we'd have more FBI agents here than people uh, trying to get to the bottom of this. But uh, when it happened, uh, of course, is enjoying his uh, retirement. And... Uh, Nobody cared to look at the potential corruption uh, that existed, uh, uh, that deprived Providence of uh, probably eight. The and this, uh, we had calculated because this was a high-level program that we instituted here. So we had statisticians and scientists, everything else uh, that we retained because we looked at at the spot that we had, uh, which was the old, uh, which was an old oil refinery coupled with the building as the matrix for the development of the 67 acres. We only had seven of the 67. And, uh, but that 67 acres, according to the computations that we got from economists and, and individuals knowledgeable in the economics of development, would have yielded Providence about $18 million a year in taxes, in tax revenue, and created about 3,000 jobs. And, and yet the story in the journal was we were, this was a job-killing project. And so uh, with the scrap metal uh, 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 process next to us, piling hundreds of tons of scrap, they uh, 
put cracks in lower floors of mm -hmm. our building, and uh, which that's what we brought suit for. And um, the end result was that the federal court uh, took over six years to hear the suit. There was something clearly wrong there. When I'm no longer a lawyer, I will go after the judge and the magistrate for those delays. When I complained about it, the magistrate threatened me with censure for uh, daring to complain about a six-month hiatus between when we filed the case and then, well, we'll remove the censure if you settle. Damn. So we settled. Uh, my part of the settlement was to turn the building over to Sims, and, that, and which is and it's lain vacant for the last six years. Uh, so uh, this is uh, uh, a total a nightmare over there. My wife's so upset by it all that uh, she doesn't even like to come into the city of Providence. It, the, the corruption was unbelievable. And in that federal case, we brought about the fact we, we had $62,000 on air test quality. We found that particulate matter, lead, zinc, cadmium, and other particles were coming up from that pile of scrap and being carried by the prevailing winds onto the hospital complex, mm -hmm. Clean Air Act, we found that there was runoff from it going into the bay. It's the rusted metals, Clean Water Act. Uh, we found out that the pile was visible from 95. And the Federal Highway Act pro pro demands that any scrap yards or salt piles or any other type of industrial matter like that has to be screened from public view. Mm -hmm. The Federal Highway Act. Now, all of these were in front of a federal court. And we filed formal claims with the State Department of Transportation, the Federal uh, Department of Transportation, the DEM, and uh, uh, the uh, environmental protection agencies of the federal government with no response. So it, 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 it doesn't pay uh, to try to foil uh, a multi-billion dollar scrap company that is global and originated in Australia and uh, has lavish offices on Fifth Avenue in New York. It, it doesn't pay uh, to fight somebody when they have that kind of money and influence to bear uh, to get favorable decisions or, or to get things done unimpeded. So it was an enormous, uh, enormous problem. Some of it is set forth in the book on the Fable Line Club, where I, for the members, attempted to explain the reasons as I'm doing it for you uh, for the club's demise. Uh, I had had a, a vision uh, that as part of that waterfront development, that state pier number one would become a Rhode Island Museum of Immigration History. And instead, it's a... Uh, it's a, a giant, uh, toxic scrapyard. It's, it seems like, I mean, it, it is true that the pier number one is both a metaphor for Rhode Island's history, for its, its 20th century history, at least, um, both a metaphor and a reality, right, because it continues to yeah. today. But through that pier, you've seen the exchange of people, the building of neighborhoods in Providence, 
from people who have gotten off that pier. Yeah. And then your attempt to revive it in a way through yeah. the, the club. Culturally so, and all, yeah. So can you describe what the club was all about and what the club was trying to do? Yeah, the, the club uh, was going to be kind of the public persona of the waterfront development. We bring in individuals uh, who um, were from all walks of life, all races, it wasn't a uh, all white club, it wasn't a man's club. It was a club of tremendous diversity as Rhode Island is a state of great diversity. And the idea was to put the club on the top floor of the building that we uh, had just renovated and placed on the National Register. And that building was going to become the matrix for the waterfront's development. Mm -hmm. And the club members seeing what had been accomplished with the building and with the adjacent land where we were having WBRU concerts and Puerto Rican festivals and cruise ship landings and ferry departures to, and arrivals on the Providence Newport Ferry to see what uh, this waterfront could produce. And so a lot of these individuals, they were, uh, they were businessmen or lawyers or uh, journalists or whatever the case may be uh, and professors and uh, they would belong to the club. They would see the potential here, presumably use what influence they had in various areas uh, to be supporters of the waterfront development. And it was a club, however, that was not just, it wasn't just a social club or promotional club. It was one that, um, that, that uh, you know, I say catered to the intellect. Uh, we had 60 lectures over a period from March of 2007 to December of 2013. We had 60 individuals come down, come in and lecture to the club. Uh, anybody from, say, uh, Lincoln Chafee coming in with his new book telling why he opposed the Iraqi war. Uh, Gordon Wood with his Pulitzer Prize winning uh, uh, book, uh, uh, on the revolutionary era. James Patterson of Brown, who uh, uh, wrote a, uh, who had written a book on uh, a transformational year in American, modern American history, 1964. Uh, we had the first black astronaut come and tell about his experiences uh, in, in, we had the first woman attorney general in the United States, Arlene Violet, come and talk about her book on the, the mob and me. Uh, was, we had all kinds of interesting lectures. We had a, a dentist from South Kingstown who, who climbed Mount Everest who came and told us about the, it was all very interesting lectures. We had Jimmy Birchfield bring all his boxing crew in. And then Jimmy and a couple of the referees talk about how they scored fights. And Vinnie Paz was there and we present, and, uh, he, there was a book just written about him and, and uh, we presented the book. So there were fascinating lectures and there were also uh, book presentations because the Fable Line Club was the, you might say, subsidiary or the DBA of the Rhode Island Publications Society. Mm -hmm. So our focus was on books. And we, we uh, had book presentations and signings for 60 different books and on various subjects, not simply Rhode Island. 
On top of that, we had 41 ethnic heritage buffets. We hired, a, we had a few chefs because they're kind of temperamental and come and go. But the ones we hired were all creative chefs. And you'll see in that book, the f menus, Native American heritage, Greek, Chinese, Irish, all the different ethnic groups. We did buffets with, the, with their, you might say, peasant food, the Polish, the Gawumpkis and the Kiopiorgis and on and on, all of that there. So it was, a, it was the diversity of the, of, the, of the food offerings represented the diversity of the Faber line itself. And so all of these things were, were done. And then we would host, for example, when the John W. Brown came in, the, la the, the one of the two remaining Liberty ships based in Baltimore, the only one on the East Coast, we hosted the crew. We had a banquet for the crew that came in. We, we, uh, uh, the ship had a little bit of difficulty uh, docking at what I call Dock Conley then, a pier that we had built out 776 feet to, to uh, uh, the channel. And uh, I said, what can you, we took some soundings here. And so I paid $32,000 to dredge that side of, the, of our dock to bring the Liberty ship in. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had thousands of people come down and, and uh, tour it. And then had a ride down Narragansett Bay with uh, some of the World War II enthusiasts who had maintained the, you know, the uh, F-51s and the Corsairs and some of the Japanese Zeros and the Messerschmitts and circling over the, the ship as it went down Narragansett Bay with myself and my wife and, and Governor Bruce Sunderland, who was a war hero in his own right, uh, up there with the captain uh, of... Uh, of the John W. Brown. So we did a, a, a number of incredible things and the Providence Newport Ferry came in and, and they broke the all-time record. There were 43,000 passengers, I believe in 2007 or 8. And then what did the state do? They were subsidizing the ferry. For, they were getting a subsidy from the federal government to subsidize water transport of 500 a year when it ran out after that magnificent year what did they do? The state couldn't come up with the 500000 to continue the subsidization of the ferry. So the ferry died off. Uh, American Cruise Lines, the same way. When we had to shut down the building, you know, they, the visitors used to come to the building. Up, We had a, a Patrick's Pier 1 function center. They'd come up and they'd dine and this and that. When the building started to shut down, American Cruise Lines pulls out. And it was, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a disaster. Uh, we were actually fighting government. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, you know, government uh, opposition, ineptitude, and corruption. And so it was... Uh, That's what I mean by it. it's, a, it's a metaphor that you can follow throughout Rhode Island's modern history from the 20th century. You can see the moments of political corruption and its influence on the pier, the sort of lag in that, the war yeah. effort for it. So yeah. it's, it's a really interesting uh, yeah. case study. What I, I'm wondering, while you're researching while you were researching about this, and I noticed some of the uh, pamphlets you have downstairs and some of the memorabilia, Yeah. Um, but what other types of sources were you using to understand the, the immigrants that were coming, the sort of, you also do uh, a, you map the geography of where these immigrants are going and how they're sort of 
building the city of Providence and yep. its neighborhoods. What are the source bases that you are working well, with? Well, the source is basically, uh, when I was a professor at Providence College, back around uh, 1970, uh, Bishop Dan Riley asked us to do a history of the Diocese of Providence. And so Maddie Smith and I did uh, a, a pictorial, a highly reviewed, you know, scholarly, uh, you know, critically, uh, a, the diocese, the Catholicism around the formative era. And so we got in very heavily to the Irish because it was practically an Irish national church by the time the Diocese of Providence was created in 1872. And then we were going to move forward, which we never did, but we were going to move forward uh, with that history. And we realized that there are other now Catholic ethnic groups, and we had gone into such extent with the Irish culture, uh, religious uh, practices, uh, and ceremonies and persona that we're going to have to do it for the other Catholic groups as well for your Polish, your Italian, your French Canadian, uh, you know, Portuguese, etc. Uh, and uh, what I then therefore did, I created uh, an ethnic heritage research center at Providence College. And I had individuals come in from some of those various groups. And I had my graduate students do master's research papers based on interviews, which we, we still have all those ethnic heritage uh, uh, essays uh, that were preserved. And I used the information gleaned from my own studies and observation from these master's theses that were done on the Italians, the Portuguese, the Greeks, the Armenians, whatever the case may be, uh, that uh, uh, so when, and then uh, that's what induced me to create the Ethnic Heritage Program of the Rhode Island Bicentennial Commission. And so there was a, a, a lot of background interaction study with the ethnic people and, and with some of the, uh, you know, the, particularly with the more recent ones, uh, uh, with their experiences that form the basis of, of my knowledge. Yeah, the uh, acquiring sources, particularly in, in sort of mass quantities through dioceses, is something that I've heard a few times. Uh, I study Russian history, that's where my field is, and when you're talking about the same era, the pre-Soviet era, most of the information that we have from um, peoples outside of the capitals, illiterate peoples, are from uh, the church records because they register the names of people, when they were born, who they married, yeah. how many children they had, all this rich information that you have to sort of quantify in order to make bigger claims about. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to hear that. I never thought really of Providence having the same source base because yeah. of the because most of the ethnicities that populated the city in those early years were Catholic. Yeah, the churches, absolutely, yeah. And, uh, and of course, the, the, some of them were kept incredible records, like the Franco-Americans. You can trace their, uh, they have genealogical societies. You can trace, my, wife is, my wife's uh, grandmother was from Quebec, and so she wanted to trace her Franco-American heritage, which is, uh, she's about a quarter French-Canadian, and wanted to trace that back. We got all the way back to 1677, with the first wow. uh, migrant coming over from France to Quebec, and uh, uh, I'm a quarter Italian, and I was able uh, through uh, this Lieutenant Colonel Dennis Morgan, the same one that did my wife's genealogy, to go all the way back into the uh, 
1820s and, and to find in 1881 uh, Pasquale de Stasio coming from Marseille. I said, oh great, a fable line. But no, uh, it was a French line uh, that was called, it was a rival of the fable line. Fable line was just starting then. French line was established. He came over uh, through uh, uh, Castle Garden, in which Ellis Island was an uh, operative at that time, and settled in New Haven. And uh, so uh, I've got the, when, when the, the, the uh, Italo-American Club found out about that, they made me an honorary lifetime member of the Italo-American Club of Rhode Island on the basis of Pasquale de Stasio. <laughs> and uh, my wife on the other side is Slavic. She's Polish, Ukrainian, through her, the intermixture there, and Russian. Uh, sometimes when, at night, we only have a, uh, we only have a, uh, uh, a queen-size bed, and it gets cold, so I'll move over, and she'll say, push over. And uh, so I call her, her name is Gail, I call her Galina Pushchova. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, we went to St. Petersburg. Uh, we took a cruise there, the Baltic cruise, and had a wonderful time there uh, back in 2015. She always wanted to do that because she, she uh, uh, went uh, to, hasn't been to the Ukraine, uh, but went to Poland on a, uh, on a, uh, a trip that, uh, uh, that where she belonged to the Polish-American Heritage Committee that I had founded. And uh, the, uh, uh, they did a pamphlet, of course, and uh, they went over because they were giving support to some ho hospital uh, facilities in Warsaw and another Polish town. I don't have to fly. So she went over with the group. Um, uh, there was a fellow out of New Jersey that organized it, that had a Polish-American radio network. And so she goes over there and, and what did I made sure that that got into the Polish pamphlet. The guy is not Lekwalesa, he's Lecha. He grabbed my wife with me here back in the United States. <laughs> That's Gail <laughs> and Lekwalesa. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, for, for the listeners, there's a whole collection. How many volumes are there exactly? There's 14 ethnic heritage groups, and then, the, and then the, uh, the, the other is, which I'm going to give you, and then uh, the, there is a, uh, uh, a 15th volume, which is not only introductory, but it'll deal with some of the groups that weren't covered, like the Chinese, the Swedes, and, uh, uh, and Native Americans, too, that chose not to do a pamphlet in the series, because the series was more ethnic and European-oriented. It's amazing, and it chronicles um, the different ethnic groups as they, uh, in their history in our state, which is amazing. And it really speaks to the point that you're trying to make regarding the line that all of these different ethnicities i mean the yeah. ships yeah. the ship's journey itself throughout yeah. all of europe yeah. uh, the mediterranean northern europe not uh, too much europe though the fable line the irish were here so your english your scottish the scottish were pretty numerous as well your swedish and your germans they were like the northern and the earlier immigration mm -hmm. and so the fable line did not you know being starting in marseille and then going throughout the Mediterranean, Mediterranean. Uh, di didn't uh, di didn't take many, uh, you might say, of Polish, Germans, Swedish, right. Irish. They took other routes to the United States. Not so much Northern Europe, but yeah, the Mediterranean all southern, basin. Yeah. Um, you've hinted at it a few times in this interview, and I don't want to keep you too long. There's about ten minutes left, um, but you you've alluded to it a few times that there is a history to be taken away from this 
as it relates to today. Um, there's, there, as you said, the immigration is on the, what is it, the tongue of a lot of people in the United States right yeah. now. Uh, there are problems with Rhode Island recognizing or, or giving a space to its immigrant history. So I'm wondering uh, how you, as, as such an esteemed historian in Rhode Island, relate this history to what's going on today if you know somebody wanted to look deeper into it. Well, what's going on today is much different than what went on then. Most of these immigrants came in by ship. They were vetted as in the in the in the present day term. Mm -hmm. uh, if there were any illnesses or problems, they were quarantined. Some sent back as a result of communicable diseases that they might have carried. Um, there was some attention given to their ability uh, to either do work or find work or be self-sufficient. That's why you had these immigrant processing centers. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> you, you, even though the influx exceeded a million and a quarter, say in, in the year 1907, <clears throat> the, the, all those immigrants that came in, they were recorded, they were examined, uh, they were, uh, there was, they were dispersed in somewhat of an orderly fashion. Uh, there was, in other words, organization and supervision to the immigrant influx. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Today, on that southern border, it's a nightmare. If people just stream across <clears throat> from all countries of the world. They are not properly vetted for illnesses, no COVID tests, for example, in current terms. You've got uh, Mexican cartels thriving and making an extraordinary amount of money by organizing these caravans and smuggling these people in. You've got uh, drugs coming across that border, uh, particularly <clears throat> the very deadly fentanyl uh, that <clears throat> is, has somewhat of an easy access. <clears throat> and as a result of the clandestine nature, sometimes you load some of these immigrants and during the summer you pack them and there's been instances where 70 or 80 are packed in a trailer and, and, and uh, brought <clears throat> deeper into the United States and just dumped out. Sometimes in that transit, they lose their lives. So it's chaotic. <clears throat> I strongly favor continuing immigration to the United States, but it's got to be supervised and controlled. <clears throat> it can't be just an assault on our southern border. And particularly <clears throat> when individuals come across without being properly vetted, because there are criminals that come in and potential terrorists, which was not much of a problem early on, uh, to fly them to different areas of the United States and just leave them there in the hands of a church group or something, uh, you know, that's, that's made to order for problems, to resettle criminals or, or terrorists or drug dealers or whatever the case may be. So we have to, we have to tighten it up. Uh, these Afghan refugees, um, some of them came to Rhode Island. The ones that came seemingly were verifiable assistants and associates of our American 
military effort in Afghanistan. Welcome. You guys are heroes. Do wonderful for them. Glad they're here. But, you know, when they did that airlift, there were a lot of individuals from Afghanistan that weren't properly vetted mm-hmm. and had no connections whatsoever with the American military. Uh, and uh, they're here too. And uh, that's been a breeding ground for terrorism. So how many, how many uh, individuals uh, are here with some kind of connection to terrorist organizations back to uh, back in uh, that Afghanistan or or uh, Iraq that might you know be potentially dangerous and harmful here, particularly with uh, uh, you don't need a a organization so to speak when you've got. Uh, individuals who are mad enough to become suicide bombers mm-hmm. and you can bring down a lot of people with a suicide bomb so in other words where it's I think it's a great threat the way immigration is being handled today a tremendous a threat to national security it's a threat to I think law and order and I think it's a health threat to a certain degree as well uh, with so in, in some ways, you're envious of the way that it was organized and people were taken in in the past, and, and you see that it's become sort of chaotic in, yeah. in recent history. Yeah, in essence, th- that's true. I mean, you know, just make the system work. Make it orderly. Make it well-supervised. Mm-hmm. Uh, do thorough vetting. Uh, and great. America's a great country. Uh, we've got a lot of room here still. And... Uh, We've, uh, you know, immigrants who have come here have uh, either themselves personally or their children have made tremendous contributions uh, to the United States. So I'm not anti-immigration, but I'm anti, uh, you know, uh, crashing gates uh, with uh, mobs of 2,500 or 5,000 or 10,000 or carriers of 25,000 <laughs> that just come and pour over the border. That's, that's uh, an invasion, not an immigration. One um, comparison or analogy that I thought of while you were talking about that and from talking to Russ um, a few months ago uh, is that at least in the second wave of immigration, particularly uh, Italians, there are socialists that come into the United States and particularly Providence. There's a Karl Marx club that's built on Atwell's Ave uh, in in the teens, I think. Italians had a lot of anarchists, too. And a lot of anarchists, too. Uh, you know, and I wouldn't necessarily call them terrorists, but they are influences that come in. And do you, do you get any indications of them coming in through the, the line at all? No. No, quite frankly, no. There's nothing? There's, no. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It, it seems like something that people wouldn't talk about when they're immigrating. Yeah, you wouldn't, as I say. So there's no evidence of, of that. I'm certainly... Certainly there were some lowlifes that came in or individuals, uh, you know, we went to Palermo, you know, we're, uh, Sicily, right. you know, it's a you, got, bit of, you got mob you know. influence coming in. I'm sure that there might have been individuals that came in uh, more to New York than to Providence, but to Providence as well, that uh, found a home with organized crime, with the mob. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the one problem with vetting is... Uh, you could feel one thing and say another. Right. And, uh, you know, how thorough can the vetting be? It could be a lot, it'd be a lot uh, uh, more thorough now with all of our information revolution that right. we've uh, 
uh, that we've developed than it was then, for sure. There's a lot more potential for information gathering. Yeah, today. yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this interview. We're almost at an hour. Uh, yeah. I didn't want to keep you over the, the time allotted for this interview. That's uh, all right. As a lawyer, I get $750 an hour. As a historian, I get zero. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it is, too. Um, but thank you so much for, for doing this and, and talking with me about the line today. Um, Thanks. All right. That's, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it quite a bit. That was my um, interview with Dr. Conley. I'm really happy and excited that he came on and he took the time to do this. He's a busy man. Uh, as always, if you like what you hear, if you support what I'm doing, um, even if you don't necessarily support the historians and the people that come on, the point is to try to spread the history of Rhode Island, the people that are involved in it, and the various events and, and topics that that define our state. And if you like that and you like the message, please share this episode with your friends and family. Please share the podcast with your friends and family. Please subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever it is you get podcasts. I'm not asking for money for this, although that would be nice. But I'm doing this because I love the state and I love our history. So thanks for tuning in. Till next time.